Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And today I'm joined by multi platinum, Grammy nominated producer, songwriter, and all round powerhouse, Linda Perry. Linda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, BT. Always, whatever you need, I'm here. So Linda was inducted into the Songwriter Hall of Fame for her immeasurable impact on the music industry after penning and producing some of the biggest songs for artists such as Pink, Christina Aguilera, Gwen Stefani, and shaping the sounds of so many others, including Dolly Parton, Alicia Keys, and Adele. There is no one who's had more of a resounding influence on the presence of female empowerment in pop culture than Linda, which is pretty funny considering she's about as far from pop as you can get. Linda also earned a groundbreaking Grammy nomination for Producer of the Year, making her the first woman to be nominated for this category in 15 years. So it's true to say very few possess the raw power and energy of Linda Perry. Thank you. Wow. So impressing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not really. There's so much more to say. It's like trying to cram so much into a few sentences. Um, So we met originally because I was curating this festival for the LA Times, this kind of new version of the book festival. And of course, you had to come and, and speak. And that I believe that was our first meeting. That was our first meeting. And then we, you know, we got to work together, which was... So wonderful. So how have you been during lockdown? Lockdown was actually, I mean, I I hate to say it, it was kind of refreshing for me because I'm not a people person to begin with, although I'm really great with people, so I don't know why I'm so reserved when it comes to, like, I don't like to go out. I don't have people over my house. I honestly don't have many friends, or may I? maybe what I should say is I... I don't know. It's hard to say because I love the people in my life, but I'm not sitting having dinner parties all the time. And and I probably should. It would probably be really rewarding to do something like that because of the people in my life are so great that it would having them all in a room together would be awesome. But I think what happens to me, I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day. My son had a my son is named Rhodes, um, Emilio Gilbert Lydon Perry has five names that he loves to use. He's seven years old. And he had a play date with one of his closest friends. And um, me and the mom were talking and she's like, God, I love your house. You must entertain here all the time. I'm like, uh, no, I don't. But it, it was interesting because I discovered in that conversation that what I struggle with is too many conversations. Like, If I had all five of the closest people in my life, you are included, it would be overwhelming for me to have conversations because I'm a one-on-one kind of person. When I work, it's one-on-one. I can focus all my energy and harness all the best of myself and give it to that person. When I'm in a room with too many people, in a more social environment, then it turns into small talk. And small talk makes me dizzy. Physically, it makes me dizzy. Have you ever like sat and talked to somebody in a party and then you can't even focus on their face anymore because you're going beyond their face? That's what happens to me. I'm, I'm beyond them and I'm looking behind them, but not really at anything, but it just 
they become blurry and then the background just starts spinning for me and then I get really dizzy and I start having the signs of a panic attack. So that's why I don't have people over because I don't know how to have several small talk conversations. It just doesn't mm. work for me. But I can also, as you can see, I can host an event that has a purpose and be very, 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 very present with panels, events, something that has a purpose, I'm great at. But if I go to your house and you're having a dinner party, you're going to find me in your kitchen cleaning the dishes. That's where I'll be. Well, it's good. I don't have any dinner parties. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, point being pandemic was awesome because it gave me an excuse <laughs> to not go out, be with anybody. I was isolated, which I am great at. My son and I had the most enjoyable time together. And it was amazing having that experience because it really honestly didn't affect my life whatsoever. If anything, it made it a little more relaxed because I didn't have to come up with a bunch of excuses why I can't go somewhere. I totally get that. And I think also with someone like you, which is something I, I really feel as well, it's like if it's work, then it's different. So obviously the event that you just put on at South By, that was work. That was, you know, bigger picture, vision stuff. And so almost then like those social issues or whatever they are, reservations can be overrided by this, you know, bigger sense of doing something that needs to be done. Or at least that's how I find it. But anything on a personal level, I totally hear you. So the name of this show, it's called Orange Juice for the Years. It's taken from a line by Oliver Sacks, neurologist Oliver Sacks, about the power of music and how deep that goes. And the line is, Music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, Linda, what does that quote mean to you? Well, I guess it's nice to hear that and be reminded. I tend to just be constantly in the moment of whatever I'm creating. And once I if I did something yesterday and I'm doing something new today, what was yesterday, it's not relevant to me. I just forget it. And I do appreciate the quote because it reminds me to appreciate what music can do for our spirit, our soul, our sanity. It can make us depressed too, you know? And, you know, and I do find that I fall more into the darkness with music than the light, which is interesting to say because I guess when everything is beautiful and I love it, it just feels like I'm driving with the top down, down PCH and the wind in my hair and it feels right. So that's the natural feeling music should have. So like eating or brushing your teeth or walking, you don't notice it. It's just something that you do, right? So where I fall into the darkness is when I hear music that doesn't feel right to me, that seems very um, deliberately geared towards growing the masses, growing the pocket, trying to be relevant, trying to be hip, 
trying to be something that sets me into depression. It's not the song per se, but it's the feeling that I immediately can detect. I immediately can detect a lie. Immediately can detect when someone is trying to be something because it feels disrespectful to the music. It feels disrespectful to the business. And it again, it's not it's not a song specifically, but it's a feeling I can just detect. Mm. And it sends me into depression when I hear that because it feels super like, oh, what a bummer that that exists. And people are not just making music because they love it and they want to make music because it's what's real to them. But really, they're making music to be popular, to be relevant, to grow their TikTok or Instagram followers, to make money, to make other people happy, to follow the the cows down into the field and graze in the same bullshit, (laughs) you know, manufactured bullshit that everybody else is following. So that's what music does to me when I detect that emotion or that actually non-emotion. So actually, we can go back to Oliver Sacks. Unfortunately, he's dead and say it should also be music can put us into a depression. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it should. But isn't that what music is? So I'm not saying I'm right and I'm not righteous in my words. It's just how I live and how I choose to have the experience, you know, the sonic experience, the because it's to me, it's not about the song. Mm. It's about what it's giving me, right? I mean, I'm listening past the words, to be quite honest. I'm listening to the feeling of what it does to me. And and that's what I go on, why certain songs are my favorites, because there's a feeling that I get when something emotionally is attacking my system. Mm. Again, that's just me and my intention when I'm listening to music. My intention is not to listen. My intention is to feel. And what else is a tonic in your life? A tonic in my life. Like, what do you mean? Like, you know, something that brings you joy or peace or something that feels good. Well, of course, my son is so important to my life because he is so... What a colorful frequency he is, you know, like he's just so vibrant with his energy and his words and his character. He rejuvenates me all the time. I mean, I adore him. I am so thankful for this this little being that showed up that makes me, you know, feel more youthful at the same time older. I'm wiser with him and I'm dumber too, you know, and I like that. And I don't mean to say dumber because it's not the the correct word, but I surrender to the fact that I don't really know anything. And through him, I'm able to discover how to be nurturing, how to feel love in a different way. You know, my patience has really come together with him and harnessing that emotion, you know, 
patience is crazy. It can just whack you out, you know, when you don't have it. But I've been able to harness it and really use it in a really nurturing way and and for myself too, not just for him. Mm. So that would be the most important thing in my life right now, the most important experience because I'm getting so much through this child. So now going back to the time when you were a child, what was the first song that imprinted on you? The first song for me was I don't know why, you know, because it's kind of funny. Okay, so I just have to give people a little who do not know this because it's really, really awesome. And maybe there is a record store that this exists somewhere, but I'll give you what it is. And it's pretty amazing. So long time ago, and, um, you know, and this is in the 60s. So I was born 1965. So I probably started listening to music at, you know, what I can remember is at four, maybe three, I can have a feeling of it. But you could go into record stores and they had these booths and it was all vinyl, you know, and you could grab the vinyl, the the record that you wanted to listen to and you could go preview it and you could go into these booths with a record player and you put your record on there. And you put the headphones on and you just sit and listen. And it was awesome. You know, like that was a cool thing to experience. I remember the Jungle Book had just come out. I think it was, wow. So if it's 1967, then my first experience was possibly at two years old (laughs) because the Jungle Book just came out. I didn't even put that together. But I remember watching it. We went to the, the movie. We saw it. And I was like, holy hell, when Trust in Me came out, when Ka came out with a snake and he started singing, you know, trust in me, trust in me, (laughs) shut your eyes and trust in me. And I was like mesmerized because there was something about the tone. It was the tone that I, I really locked into not necessarily the song but there was like this very hypnotic tone to it and I was sold and then my mom saw I was like oh my god I love this she saw how much I wanted to see Jungle Book again 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 and here's the funny part so my mom comes home one day with all these records you know we were able to listen to the records in the record store blah 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 And my mom comes home and she comes home with Jungle Book, Cinderella, Snow White. I feel like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Maybe, I don't know. There was another movie, old movie. Maybe it was Peter Pan. I don't remember that one. But she gives me the fucking Cinderella. And she gives my brother Jungle Book. And I was like gutted. And I was like, Mom, I don't even like Cinderella. And she gave my brother the Jungle Book. But anyways, it took everything to convince my brother to give me the Jungle Book. He didn't give it to me, but he said, you can listen to it. You know, I never listened to that stupid Cinderella record at all. I hated it. (laughs) Didn't like Cinderella. It was not me. But I loved Jungle Book because the melodies were so great. And anyway, so long story, I'm sorry. but No, this is brilliant. My brother, he was able to see how much 
passion I had and I listened to it all the time and I'm amazed that I didn't put the two to two together that Jungle Book came out in 1967 so I was two years old when I had that memory I imprinted on fucking Jungle Book at two perfect well now we're going to take a listen to Trust in Me by Sterling Holloway from the Jungle Book Trust in me just in me Shut your eyes And trust in me And that was Trust in Me by Sterling Holloway from The Jungle Book and that was the song that Linda chose as the first track that imprinted on her age two which is crazy so how old were you when you went to the cinema like that same age yeah because back then again you know i feel like it's back then but going to see a movie cost 25 cents crazy isn't that crazy yeah isn't that nuts and then you could do a double feature for 50 cents and so we were poor and there was no taking us to disneyland or any of those kind of places so we were able to go to movies because it was cheap. And so, yeah, so we were watching all those movies early on. And I can't remember if if things were on TV, too. I mean, it's so hard to go back all the way. But I do remember Wizard of Oz maybe came out on TV first because I remember Wizard of Oz coming out and seeing it on TV and it going to color for the very first time. I mean, I sound so old, but I'm only 56. (laughs) But that shit happened. You know, there was black and white TV, you know. But then I think it was when I was four that I, I really discovered music. And that was the carpet. Maybe I was four when the carpenters showed up. I want to say showed up in 1969, so maybe how old would I have been? Four. Oh, yeah, I would have been four. I know this isn't part of the story, but you can't ask me this without me saying Karen Carpenter. When I heard the Carpenters for the first time and I saw them on TV, they were on a show, and I was trying to identify who the singer was because I don't know if it was close to you or or it might have been Superstar or close to you, but I was trying to identify on the TV where is the singer because the singer wasn't up front. Yeah. And then I just heard this beautiful, haunting voice and then I locked in and it was, oh my God, she's playing drums and she's singing. And then my emotional maturity, that's where it came from. Karen Carpenter's voice. Wow. Again, not necessarily the songs, because the songs were all like cheesy. They were like what you would think that kind of music was. Very white bread, home safe, you know, why do birds fly in the sky or whatever, you know, whenever you're near, Mm -hmm. whatever. But her voice told me a different story. And that to me was the ingredient that really locked in who I was going to be in this world. And that tone really, really resonated with me because I was very dark as a kid. And it was like 
medicine for me. Like, oh, it's okay to feel this feeling. Mm. In fact, I'm going to embrace it now. You know, so mind you, I'm at four years old already having these dark feelings. And I'm hearing this voice that's really expressing something that I can really relate to. And I think that really was a defining moment for me. Well, there's also something about both the carpenters and her voice and how you describe or what you think of when uh, you hear the song Trust in Me, because there's this sort of juxtaposition, trust in me, it's obviously bringing you in and saying that you're safe and all of that. And obviously it's the opposite. So there's this sort of tension there. Mm. And obviously then with Karen Carpenter's voice, there's a similar tension Um, Mm. Do you think that with Trust in Me, there was a lyrical awareness or any of the lyrics particularly resonated with you? Yeah, again, not knowing, but you pretty much just nailed it. Like that probably is exactly what it is because my environment was not safe. You know, and here you're at this Disney movie and it's like Mickey Mouse and Disney. It's the safest and happiest place in the world, blah, 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 blah. And here's this very suspicious little character coming through, weaving through the trees and telling this kid that you should you can trust me and, you know, just relax and fall asleep, you know, go into your slumber. Everything is going to be okay when really this snake is, you know, wrapping him in his coils and is going to crush him and eat him. And pretty much that just pretty much describes my childhood. A bunch of people acting like I can trust them when really they're up to no good and they're, you know, malicious. So you were born in Springfield, Massachusetts to a Portuguese-American father, a Brazilian mother. I mean, you've just given a pretty striking portrait of what home life was like, but can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, so I was born in Springfield and at one years old, which I don't remember, we moved to California. I was raised with three brothers and one sister. But then when I was four or five, was introduced to a brother that was my mom's son that lived in Brazil and my mom didn't bring him to America. And then I guess... You know, it gets very crazy with my mom and her secrets and my father. There's just so many. I don't even know what to believe anymore. But anyways, this particular brother was raised to believe that my mom's mother was his mom. So he was left in Brazil. And then my father, I guess, brought him to America because my mom was just heartbroken. I guess being in Brazil during those times wasn't the greatest. And so America is where everybody wanted to be. Every immigrant wanted to be in America. I'm not certain why, but everybody wanted to be in America. And so that brother showed up. And then apparently I had another brother that I didn't know about that, again, from my mom that was raised to believe my mom's sister was his mom. And it just doesn't stop. It gets crazier and crazier. So anyways, I was really raised with three brothers, but then this brother showed up and he was not a brother to me, you know, and he created a lot of trauma in my life. And it was not a happy time for me when he showed up. So I have 
five brothers, but I was raised really in my mind with the three, my brother Solomon, John, and Jay, and my sister Sally. And was there a lot of music in the house? No, and that was the crazy thing too, because, well, there is, there was, there was music, but it was, my father was a musician in Brazil. He was in like this country samba band. I mean, I don't even know how, what it was, but he loved music. You could tell he was talented in it. If we were ever at a store and there was a piano, my father would play it and he would play very beautifully, you know, jazz. But never, never introduced us to it, never encouraged music to come from us, nothing. It was like a dead in the water because he was unsuccessful at it. He chose to become an engineer and drop all the music completely. And he just lived in this fantasy that, you know, when he'd put on his Frank Sinatra records or Cole Porter or jazz albums, he was reliving a life that he never, never had. Mm. My dad wanted to be Frank Sinatra. He wanted to be those guys. He wanted to be the cool guy in the band and wine and dine and luxury and all that. It never happened. That was a pipe dream. He never followed through with it. So I guess that dream, it didn't pass on to us because it was a failure for him. So we were raised to not really embrace music. Rock and roll, of course, was terrible. But my brothers, I remember them listening to the Beatles and I think the Turtles and stuff like that. The Monkees were in, in my life. I remembered those bands. I remember my sister listening to Elvis Presley, the Beach Boys, the Supremes were around. I remembered these feelings. My mom loved Brazilian music. She listened to a lot of Carmen Miranda, Charo, Sergio Mendez, Joe Brato. I remembered those feelings, but I didn't gravitate towards anything. I just took it all in. And I never listened to my own music. I never curated my own style. I just kind of listened to everybody's. So I love Frank Sinatra. I love Sergio Mendes. I love the Beatles. I love, I mean, I just took on everybody's music style and just made it my own and just was very open to all mm. country, all of it, you know. And I think that's why I'm so open when it comes to writing music is because I never said I was a rock and roller, never said anything. I just, I just loved it all. In fact, in my teens, I hung out with the punks and, you know, I had a mohawk. I was like a little punk rocker, but they would laugh at me because I did listen to Elvis Presley and the Beach Boys, you know, and rock and roll and all this stuff. I would listen to mod music. I listened to death metal, Christian death music. And they would just like, you're not a punk rocker. I'm like, yeah, I am. You guys aren't punk rockers. Punk isn't a sound. It's not a look. It's a fucking attitude, man. You know, and I, I always had that attitude about punk. And so I started hearing that, you know, true punk rockers would say stuff like that. And then I would be like, see... 
punk isn't a fucking hairdo. It's the way you walk, the way you move through life. I am a rebel. I'm a punk rocker because I am free to admit that I love all styles of music. And I stand behind that. I read that you found school challenging. Not really surprising. I mean, given what a strong person you are, but that it made you not trust your head. Yeah, school, school was challenging because... It all did sound like the peanuts, wah, 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 wah. I couldn't embrace it. I couldn't take it in. I couldn't lock in to the challenges of school, you know, the math. And still, it's embarrassing. My seven-year-old is better at math than I am. I don't know much about anything, to be quite honest. And I get easily intimidated, like when you and I get into conversations and you use your big fancy words, I, I, I'm like totally like, I don't know what that means. And I have to take a beat and just try to understand, okay, what does that mean? What is she asking me? You know, so at school, I fucked off all the time because I just couldn't, I couldn't learn. I didn't know I had a learning disability. They don't know you have a learning disability back then. All they, they just clarify you smart or dumb. Mm. And when you're not smart, they put you in bungalows outside of the regular school. Not to make you feel any worse, they're going to put you in a bungalow that's not even attached to the regular school. And then you're going to be in there with a bunch of other people who don't know certain things. And then nothing gets done and you don't learn anything because you don't teach dum-dums. You just put them in a room together and let them figure it out. And that's kind of how I was approached, you know, like, okay, she's failing, she's failing, okay. But thank God my parents didn't care. They weren't paying attention to that stuff. And we could forge our fake our report cards. And, my, you know, my, my parents didn't care. They just weren't there. Mind you, I wasn't brought up in this sloppy home and blah, blah, blah. Like, my mom kept a very, very clean house. We moved all the time. My father was at work all the time and chose to stay at work. And my father, when he wasn't at work, he was at bars, you know, entertaining his friends with the money that he didn't have that was supposed to go to getting us food or paying rent you know, my father just was not very responsible. And so my mom had to become crafty. And in the ways she became crafty wouldn't be considered morally correct, you know, should we say. So school was the least of our problems. And I had a learning disability. I didn't understand when someone would say something. I don't know how to even today, if you were going to sit there and show me how to put something together, I wouldn't be able to do it. I have to learn myself. Mm. So life became even harder. Take the other shit aside, I had to start learning myself. What would you say the first record was that shaped who you are and had a major impact? Well, there was something about Blondie. Deborah Harry, 
you know, during these times, here I am, this has got to be late 80s. I don't know. When did Blondie show up? Or no, or late in the 70s, probably. Yeah, Eat to the Beat was 79. Yeah. You know, hearing her voice and hearing that. I know there was a bunch of women before Deborah Harry, but Deborah Harry fucking rocks, you know, like her look, her everything was just so awesome. And her voice. So Eat to the Beat, like when I heard that album, because there was this song Union City Blues that, again, that drawn out thing that I guess now that I'm talking to you about it, I was very drawn to drawn out, you know, songs that with these vocals, you know, like, oh, 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 what are we gonna do? You know, union, union, you, and then just the, ah, oh, not in my life. You know, it's like <laughs> the way she would sing would be so like fucking. Yeah. But then there would be faster songs, you know. I love the drawn out, it's melodramatic. It's like, uh, you know, it's like this big open voice that shows up. And I think that's why I like 60s French pop because that's what they did those you know like you know like they go into these you know I get it now you know like you and I have talked about your voice and how it's very Nico and how it can draw out and that's why I wanted you to get that when you use your voice draw it out a little bit like be a little more melodramatic with that you know because you have that deep rich you know resin on your vocal cords, you know, that I'm drawn to. So I think that that album, it started really introducing the songwriter in me, I feel like I would start discovering melodies of my own. And I was always very musically inclined. I just didn't know that's what I was supposed to do. Hmm. It just felt like, again, like walking, talking, something very natural, something too comfortable, how it couldn't possibly be something that I was going to become because my father always put it on us, education, education, but the fucking guy never even give a shit about our education. No one read to us. No one helped us with homework. No one did any of that stuff. My mom didn't even fucking speak English, you know, and we weren't allowed to learn um, Portuguese because it was considered in the 60s and it's not cool to be an immigrant back then, you know, so we weren't allowed to speak the language. My mom wasn't allowed to teach us. So it's like here I have this, you know, slurry alcoholic father that's not around and comes around and when he is around preaching about how smart he is and how he's an engineer and how we need to do that, you know. And then I have this mom that barely speaks fucking English that's fucking crazy. She's a lunatic, you know, and is very abusive and angry. I had an angry mom that had a right to be angry. I mean, I respected my mom. I didn't judge it. She had every right to be angry. Unfortunately, we were her her target, you know, at the time to get her anger out. But I don't know why, Beatty, I had an understanding of that at such an, you know, at such an early age. I knew that. And it's like, I would take these beatings and I would be okay with it. And I never held it against her, you know, so... 
It was tough. And then put the stupid kid that's in a fucking bungalow on top of it. Life just got even harder. Get the the alcoholic father, the on welfare, the abusive mom, the fucking weird brother that shows up out of nowhere that's, you know, sexually violating me. And then now, oh, I'm stupid on top of it all? Fuck. I'm fucked. On paper, it just looks like a big F. Fucked. Failure. Forgotten. Forget about it. That is a lot. Uh, and if I was there, I'd give you a big hug. <laughs> yeah, I'd say freaking great is what you are. We're now just going to take a musical moment and listen to Union City Blues from the record Eat to the Beat by Blondie. And that was Union City Blues from the record Eat to the Beat by Blondie. And that was the album that Linda chose as the first record that really had an impact on her. Because you said it opened up this awareness of the songwriter and sort of in you as well. Like, was that around the time you started writing songs? Um, How old would I be in 79? Like 14. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. What happened is I think that that whole time... You know, there's Blondie, there's there's all this great music showing up now. I got very into Susie and the Banshees, and, and then I started really getting into the Beatles at that time, and actually really into the Beach Boys, you know. I mean, I really was listening to a lot of different music, and I think that at 14, that's when the artist started showing up. Because I was able to start really identifying who I was. Now, mind you, at 14, I'm failing school. I'm not really in it that much. I'm ditching all the time. I'm drinking. I'm now experiencing, experimenting with drugs. I'm pretty much a rebel kid. I'm stealing, which my mother introduced to us. I have to tell you the story because it's so funny. Um, my mom would wake us up at 12 o'clock at night and say, come on. And we're like, what? My mom had nothing to do, right? You know, it's like she learned English through the TV. My mom's so smart. You know, it's funny how smart. My mom's smarter than my engineer father. Um, (laughs) But she would wake us up. And what she would do is she spend the day (laughs) scouting the neighborhood, you know, in different parts of neighborhoods for plants. So at nighttime, she would wake us up and we would go in the car and we'd go steal these plants. She's like, there's this plant. Wow. So we would fucking go into yards, all this stuff, <laughs> stealing fucking plants. And my mom would sell them. She'd keep some and then she would sell some. That's how we would make money. Back then, I guess Target would be considered, uh, our Target was called FedMart. And um, we would go in the FedMart. We were like a fucking uh, a gang, you know. <laughs> uh, my mom and my sister would steal the, the clothes. My brother would get the bag and I would return it. 
my brother John and my brother Jay never want anything to do with this stuff. But me, my brother Solomon, and my sister were like, yeah, we were the bad ones, you know. <laughs> but wait, you said you'd return it, so you'd take it back? You would take it back. So back oh. then, you didn't need a receipt. Oh, I so see. So all you needed was the bag and the clothes with on the hanger and the, yeah. the, the tag still on. So my mom and my sister would steal the clothes. My brother would steal the bag. And I would come in and I would say... You know, my mom's in the car. She can't come in, but she bought this. It doesn't fit. And can we return it? And me being this young little, you know, I think maybe I was six or seven at the time, this young kid, you know, they're believing and they could see my mom in the car because my mom would park there, you know, and the doors would always be open, big glass doors and they would be okay. And then here's $27, here's $40, you know, here's $20. So that's how we'd we'd make money. Wow. And we'd have a racket. We'd steal plants. (laughs) We'd steal food. We'd walk out. Literally, you've seen it in the movies, people putting stakes in their clothes, wearing big jackets. We would be in there stealing stakes, chickens, fucking whatever the fuck we could cram in there. Um, My mom taught us that, you know, she taught us how to steal. And we became little kleptomaniacs. And I was stealing all the time at 14. I was masterful. So the artist was showing up too. And the artist was that. And I was starting to define who I was, my look, everything. But interestingly, from a young age, didn't you always feel that that part as in the art had to be really true? And, you know, you had to be saying what you wanted to say and it had to be absolutely authentic. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of hard because I think it was... When I was 15, I really started writing songs. My brother was in this band, and he was awesome, my brother John, and he's still so awesome in my life. But he was in this band called Chaos, and he was a great guitar player. And he looked cool, and the chicks loved him. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to be like my brother John. And so I just started learning how to play guitar by listening to him play. So I would just listen outside of the garage, and then I just I just started learning by ear. And then I basically started writing songs, and he, he would let me play his guitar, not through his amp. I couldn't play through his amp for some reason, you know, but I could play his guitar. And then my mom, she did get me guitars, you know, when I was younger, but they were like baby guitars. But I could start making up and learning things and just learning how to play by myself. And then I just started coming up with riffs and songs and melodies and words. And they were always depressing. I remember I had this song called Desperate. And I don't know. Well, now I know. But it was about a, a whore and how desperate she was. And she had to do these things for money. And little did I know at the time there was a real meaning of that regarding my mom. And then there was this song that I wrote called Pity Girls, and it was about a girl that committed suicide. And these are the songs that I'm writing at 14, 15 years old, 15. And then at 16, I tried to kill myself. So there were all these little messages going on. And mind you, before that, and at 15, I was trying to join bands, and I guess I was just too young. And then I did get picked to be in a band 
And then they kicked me out because they said I didn't sing like the, because it was a cover band. And they're like, well, you're not singing like the people. You have to sing more like the song. But I would be like, but why? So, yes, I, I didn't understand why people wanted to sound like the band. It's like, why not sound like me? And I had a very interesting voice, and I guess it just wasn't good to them. Tell me about moving to San Francisco and what that opened up for you, because didn't it also open up your voice? Yeah, and then I guess around 87, I don't know what held I was, but I moved to San Francisco, 1987, and I just kind of really started to really understand oh, I'm going to be a rock star. Like, I, it was happening in San Diego. You know, I got clean and sober, and I was just like, okay, I got to stop fucking around. And I was writing songs always and playing to my friends, and they loved it. I'd do little concerts. But I had a very Sade voice. There was this band called um, Everything But The Girl that I loved, you know, and I loved Tracy Thorne's voice. And so I was like kind of in that area where there was something jazz folky about it, you know, pop folk. I don't know what the fuck that shit was called. But then um, when I moved to San Francisco, you know, I listened to fucking Lion and the Cobra and that fucking album is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. There's never been a record like it. There was never a record like it before and hasn't been a record like it after. No one has ever been able to capture what Sinead O'Connor did with that fucking record. That record is like a masterpiece. It's so brilliant. And her anger and her rage on stage and her power by sitting there and not... She never got aggro on stage, but you could tell her presence was just powerful And that was like, it brought out this thing in me. And then I started writing songs. And then all of a sudden, this huge fucking voice came out. It's like I was a bear hibernating for years. And then all of a sudden, I came out of that cave. And I was fucking ginormous, you know. And my growl, my roar fucking was heard around the world. That's how it felt to me. And then, then... I said, I'm going to fucking be a rock star. And then that moment, I didn't fucking stop. And so 1987 was a very, very, very big year for Linda Perry. Because then the drive, the motivation, the artist, the writer, the producer, all of it showed up. The conqueror, the fucking phoenix from the flame, you know. Oh, yeah. All of it fucking showed up and it's like all my anger all my pain my anger my disappointment my sadness my depression all of it just showed fucking up in that room and I embraced it all and I have been non-stop since then and did you feel like you were a natural front woman? Was that something that was comfortable for you or was there sort of tension within that? No, it all made sense to me because, you know, even in school, 
little Linda always introduced herself as Linda Perry. It was weird. People laughed at me. I would always say, my name is Linda Perry, you know, and they would look at me funny, like, why are you saying your last name? But it, the two went together. Linda was not right. Linda Perry was my name. And so like when I'd walk into punk rock parties or any kind of school parties, I was a fucking star, but I didn't know what that meant. I just knew I was fucking somebody. I was doing that when I was five. I was interviewing myself. It all just started making sense when I moved to San Francisco. It all came together and was like, I've been prepping myself for this stardom, for this all my life. So when I hit that stage for the first time, that was like, welcome fucking home. Where the fuck you been? It was easy. But you also didn't want to just be an artist. Mm-mm. So just tell us a little bit about that and when you realized that actually that gig as just the artist wasn't for you. Yeah, so when I was on that stage, it was great. I became the writer. I was the, the front person, the person everybody's listening to, watching. But then I also became the person everybody was watching and looking at and wanting to talk to. The interviews, the photos, the bleh. You know, it's like performing when you were told to perform. It's like, uh uh-uh, you don't fucking tell me what to do. You know, because I'm a rebel. You know, I am rebellious all the way through and I'm still like that. So that didn't jive well with me because you know what I found out? The artist is not the one in power. And so when we were signed to Interscope, We worked for Interscope. We weren't in control. We didn't have control of what we were going to do. We didn't have control of the music. They put their fucking thumb on everything. They were trying to control our look. And I was, fuck you, you're not going to have control of that. They controlled the environments. They controlled this. They tried to control everything. And finally, I just said, fuck that. No way. I did not sign up for this. But then I started paying attention to the people who did have control. The managers had control. The labels had control. The producer had control. And then I was like, okay, I'm leaving. I'm not going to do this anymore. This is not a powerful position to be in. I'm out. And so then I seeked out the power. Who has the power? The producer. The producer right now has the power, but they also have good power. The producers I worked with, or should I say the one producer, you know, with the four non-blondes, used his power in a a negative way. And even Bill Bottrell, I love Bill Bottrell, but he was manipulative. Bill Bottrell was a dick, but I really loved him. And he taught me everything, but he was an asshole. And he probably still is. But he was a mentor and a teacher. He was my professor. Like, I learned a lot from him. But he was a manipulating fucking prick, you know. And I appreciate that about him. But a miserable little (laughs) son of a bitch, you know. And, you know, so it's like, fine. I don't care to have him in my life. But I'm very grateful and thankful for him. So to me, that's what I needed to be. The producer, if I'm producing my stuff... I have all the power. And I learned very quickly, I didn't need a label. Fuck that. They're useless. A label is fucking useless unless you're a big artist. Then they come to the table with their money. They still aren't creative, but they bring more support. 
A label is great if they're actually going to support you. But if they're not going to support you and you're not big enough, forget about it. You're just trapped in this fucking bad job. You're trapped in a cubicle. And so that's what I seeked out. I wanted control of my art. Well, and also what's up, the version everyone knows is actually, it's your version, right? Yes. And you couldn't take a production credit on that. No. And even my manager didn't fight that. If one of my artists came to me and I saw that they produced the record and they saved the fucking career of the band and what they did was about to launch a huge career, I would go, listen, this version isn't going on this album. We're going to take it off if she doesn't get credit. I would fight for my fucking artist, but my manager didn't. I know why she didn't, because you didn't do that. Girls didn't do that. And female managers didn't have the power to make something like that happen. And so I get that it was going to be a fight for her, that she was a, she was afraid to lose. And my label wasn't going to fight for it because they're the ones that are sitting with the, the producer saying, can't you just be happy that you saved the song and your band? Wow. Sure, sure. I'm going to be happy about that. But right after that, that fucking shit never happened again. Never happened again. And, and honestly, I'm going to say thank you for that experience. Because because of that experience, it gave me a very, very quick lesson on how you're going to be fucked in this business and you have to protect everything. And it made me motivated and driven to figure out production right after that with my first paycheck, first money that we made. I went and bought a bunch of gear that I didn't know what it did. But I knew it was shit that was in studios and I bought it. I didn't ask anybody to help put it together. I put it all together myself, not knowing anything about it. I would ask a friend, hey, what is this? Oh, you know, this is what you have to do. You have to attach this to blah, 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 blah. Oh, you need a board, Linda. Oh, I need a board? Okay, and I'd go buy a board and then I'd figure, I figured it all out on my own. I would ask a question here and there, but I did it with my fucking hands on my own. And then to weld things, I asked this guy that I knew, can you put this all together for me now, welding all the wires? I didn't know how to do that. And then I learned, I fucking learned what all that shit did. What is a compressor? Now I know. EQ, I know. What a board does, I know. it. Outboard gear, I know. it. I know it all. And you taught yourself? You taught yourself all of this? I taught myself. Now, listen, I don't know when someone says, hey, can you cut 2K and boost 5K? Fuck you. I don't know that bullshit. I don't need to know. But I can turn the knobs until it sounds good to my ear, and I get great sounds. That's all I care about. You can take your numbers and shove it up your fucking ass, and you can t take all the distortion and what is supposed to be proper and shove that up your ass too. If it sounds good to me, that's all I go for. But that also goes back to the thing we were talking about when you were at school and how you obviously had this challenge where you had to learn something yourself. Yeah. Um, and that's so much more empowering because by doing that, you actually learn what you like. You learn to listen to your ear. You learn all these things that you can't replicate. No one else can replicate because they're unique to you. And you, you really learn to trust yourself in that. Um, so in some way, it's like that difficulty on the one hand is also a real strength. Yeah. No, again, that's why... 
I'm a firm believer that everything that we go through, me going through the WhatsApp thing and them not letting me be a producer on that is why I'm where I'm at right now. That was priceless. That's priceless. I learned something so amazing that now look at where I am. You know, I love my career and I love where my career keeps going. And it's all because of these these experiences, the drunk father, the abusive mom, the sexually abusive brother, the not having any help with school, all of it, the anger, the depression, the suicidal attempt, all of it, all of it, all of it has made me who I am. And I'm powerful. And I'm just figuring it out, too. You know, like, I'm just... Honestly, I feel like the past couple of years, I have stepped finally into my full power and understanding exactly what it does, what I'm capable of doing. And that's empowering on its own to feel that. When did you write the first song that you knew wasn't for you? Oh, get the party started, hands down. That's when it all started, that part. Again, I had put this gear together at my house in San Francisco, I had this huge warehouse, and it was all analog. It was all analog gear, all tape, all this stuff. And so when I moved to Los Angeles, and I'm listening to all these sounds that doesn't sound like that now. You know, now we're in what, 2000, I think it hit. And I'm hearing this different sound. And I'm like, what is all this stuff? And so I asked a friend, I'm like, what is that sound on radio right now? Like, what, what is, what are people using? Because I was really intrigued. And he's like, oh, yeah, people are using, you know, Triton boards, uh, these Roland expansion core, you know, and they're using MPCs, and this and that. And I'm like, intriguing, you know, and I'm like, okay, so I went and bought all that stuff. And I set it all up, again, not knowing what any of this stuff does. And I just start putting it all together. And out of me putting it all together, I kid you not, I'm not exaggerating. Once I got everything hooked up, and I started learning what all the stuff does, I didn't have Pro Tools. So I just had my tape machine still. And so now, mind you, you know, there's no cut and pasting. So here I am creating this bongo MPC kind of thing, basically. So you program a beat and then as you go along, you can add, you know, more percussions and stuff. So here I am, I push play, I pick my tempo and I just lay down a click track. Okay, I'm going to be at 120. Okay, great. And so then I get my MPC and I'm just like, okay, get lining it up as close. Tick, 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 push the play. And then here goes my beat. Boom, boom, boom. And then as it's playing, I start adding bongos. And then hi-hats. You know, and then so now I'm letting this play for three minutes and 40 seconds. I fucking have no idea. I'm playing live, you know, so that's done. And then I start doing the whole thing. Everything was all one take, laying it down. And that is the last thing I did was grab a bullet microphone, which is a harmonica microphone. And I just go, I don't know what I'm going to do. Let me think. You know what? I'm just going to come up with every cliche imaginable. And then I'm like, 
I'm coming up. And I sing in this weird little voice through this harmonica microphone. And these fucking words and this song comes out. And I'm just literally in hysterics going, what the fuck is this shit? (laughs) But I knew it was a hit, you know, and that's where it started. All that NPC again with this experience being open to the open to the journey, man. You know, it's just, I'm just fucking open to, I'm open to everything. You know, I just bring it on. I'll, I'll fucking make something out of it. When it's amazing how then the people started showing up for these songs you were writing. It was yeah. like all, all meant to be. Tell me with Beautiful why that original chorus lyric was one you struggled with so much. Well, because, you know, I didn't think I was beautiful. I didn't think that at all. And it felt very uncomfortable for me to say I am beautiful when I look in the mirror. It's like, okay, being extremely oversharing. But when I look in the mirror, I look like I have really dark hair. I have black circles around my eyes. I have big wrinkles around my my laugh line. I am short, you know, so I'm very short. I'm heavy and I'm just, I'm dense. I'm dense and I'm thick. That's what I look like to me. So it's very, very, very hard to ever say something to the effect of I am beautiful when I might as well be a black scribbly fucking dark circle, you know, in my mind. So it was very, very hard to write it. And so that's why I started opening it up a little bit. And a friend of mine, Eric, he had heard the song. And I remember him saying, maybe you should open it up for everybody. So I was like, that's a good idea. And so I turned, I am, you are, we are. That made it feel better to me to finish the song. Well, from your description of what you see when you look in the mirror, I don't think I've met Linda Perry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is not what I see. And I don't think it's what anyone else sees. But um, and obviously, you know, you're not pop, you know, you're raw, gritty, dark, all of these things. Um, How does it feel having penned some of the biggest popular hits outside your genre? Weirdly, it reminds me of your opening music choices of there being this tension between what it's saying and what it's actually saying or what it sounds like and what it feels like, like Karen Carpenter's voice and the songs that she's singing or the serpent and the message, you know, the message versus the intent. I think what is interesting about me going back, you know, now I can sum it up because you you pointed this out. It's back to that that thing. Karen Carpenter was the girl next door singing all these very wholesome songs, but she was suicidal, depressed, and she was anorexic. Disney It's got this great Disney movie. Disney is happy, happiest place in the world. But here's this serpent talking about trust me when when the serpent wants to eat you. So it is a contradiction of here I am, this dark, brooding character, but 
I pop out a couple of pop songs once in a while. But the pop songs, the reason why they're so successful, listen, one of my hits is equal to someone if they wrote 10. When I hit, it hits big. And I'm not talking about numbers. It impacts a lot of people. It's global. It's a classic. It doesn't go anywhere. My songs will always be classics. They're not going to be, you know, run of the mill. They were there and now they're gone, like most of music that's out there right now. And also career defining for so many artists. And career defining, yeah. But, you know, right now I don't focus on that right now because, you know, the truth is I'm trying to define who I am now. I'm lost through it all, through the Alicia Keys and Pink and all that stuff. I've lost myself, and I'm not going to lie. I don't know how to write a song for me, and I don't know who I am in this business anymore except for when I'm managing or doing philanthropy or being a mom. Scoring is so fun, but I don't ha- I'm not me. I'm them. I'm scoring someone else's emotion. I'm another character in the film, and it's great. I'm really good at it. But it's like when I work with artists, I'm not me, I'm them. I'm not Linda Perry and Miley Cyrus. I I have to think about who they are, not who I am. So I don't write as many songs anymore because I just don't want to walk that path anymore. So I'm being very specific and very, very particular about who I'm working with when it comes to that. And I love being a manager because I, I'm good at that. I'm a good manager. I'm actually great at managing artists because I'm a fighter. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fight for you. And I'm a great philanthropist because I'm a fighter. What really is my defining part of who I am or the person is I am a fighter and I will fight for you. And I'm a survivor that is constantly trying to fucking survive this fucking life, man. There's always something around the corner. There's always, and my fists are up, always. And I know that sounds bad, but it's not. Because I'm not just fighting for myself. I'm fighting for a lot of people. And at the end of the day, people will be able to see, I will be able to see all the people that I fought for because it's going to be showing a difference in their life. You know, and that's where I'm trying to get to. That, I don't care about how many fucking stupid songs I've written. I just want to know what impact did I make while I was here. Well, I think that can't be questioned. And it's like every experience you had where you felt the power was taken away from you. And obviously your early life and family life sort of sounds like all the time, but also as an artist with the production credit and, you know, your manager not stepping in and those things. It's like you've taken that feeling of the kind of, yeah, the injustice and disempowerment that you you might have experienced and might have just turned inward and you've become like this incredible force for good for helping others in those areas you know those areas that you didn't have the maybe the right help in yeah you know thank you and I'm a late bloomer here like you're going to see me take a bigger leap towards philanthropy and really focusing 
this energy, this motivation towards helping more. I feel like I have really have not done as much as I should. And there's so many areas I can help because there's so many areas that I've experienced myself, you know, and so I really want to do some good. I really do. And what happens with me is I take on so much that it gets overwhelming. And right now I'm really trying to clean house and really focus on the things that really mean something to me. And I'm one of those people that doesn't like to say no, but I need to start saying no in order to make a bigger impact. I have to start saying no to things. What is the music you would send into space, Linda Perry? Well, I mean, that's honestly a hard question, but, you know, because there's so many wonderful things. But I guess I feel like the universe needs a little punk rock. And so I worked on this. I managed this band called Surfboard. I worked very closely with them and produced this record and mixed it. It's my first record I ever mixed. And I love it. I mean, it is my guilty pleasure. I love the energy. It's a lot of Danny Miller. She's such a high energy and trying to help people and send a good message through punk rock. And she touches on a lot of different topics. And I think punk rock needs a big boost in this business. So yeah, I want to send it out in space so the aliens can feel it. The thing about punk rock, like we said, It's not a haircut. It's not a sound. Punk rock is a movement that people should start adapting more of. Perfect. Let's take a listen to Keep On Trucking by Surfboard. keep on trucking by surfboard and that was the record that linda would send into space because the aliens need to hear some punk rock (laughs) (laughs) you know there are obviously so many things you can put your energy into because you're endlessly creative and brilliant and it seems like you know i'm sure you do still suffer from imposter syndrome but i really don't know how but i also think that that actually keeps people uh not complacent, which is very important. But looking at the planet, imagining that we're out in space, what is the one issue or area that you really want to put your energy into at this point in time and going forward? That's a tricky question because to me personally, the biggest problem that we are having that is a reason why we're having such disruption on this planet is because of the energy of the people on it. I am a firm believer, if you scream at a plant, it's going to die. If you play beautiful music for it and tell it that you love it, it's going to blossom and just survive and be so beautiful. And right now, I'm having a problem with the people on it and how we are not coming together like we should. And there's just so much hate and so much, there's so many things that are just so unimportant that people are focusing on. Like I didn't see it, but I'm actually shocked to have heard about it. And we can take current events right now where 
this is a perfect example. Here you have the Oscars that are supposed to be celebrating people's art, their gifts, the beauty that they brought in. You're celebrating a woman that created, that filmed a beautiful film, celebrating deaf actors and directors and defiance and diversity and first time this and first time that. And we can't get away with the stupid hosts that have to come in and always put people down. It's a negative energy. Going into this beautiful ceremony, there's a negative energy that always comes from the host that they feel like they have to put people down. I get it. It's been passed on from time on, time on, time on. But then you have a very prominent person that is supposed to be looked up to, that has done really great things in the community, that walks up on stage and slaps someone and creating this violence on camera, apparently. I I didn't watch it. I heard about it. And I was shocked because my first thing was like, whoa, well, that's too bad for Will Smith. He probably got kicked out. And oh, no, no, he didn't get kicked out. What do you mean he didn't get kicked out? No. In fact, he won Best Actor. Wait a minute. You're telling me that a grown man walked on the stage and was violent towards another person, showed an act of violence on camera, live, and he did not get kicked out? That is shocking to me. And then went on and was rewarded for his violence with an Oscar. That's America, baby. Yes, the Antarctic is melting. Yes, the sun is burning. But I think, can't you at least think that maybe all this is happening because the energy Mm. of the world and the people are in it are killing this planet with the bad frequencies that are going on, the Mm. bad energy, the hate, the discomfort, the insecurities, the ego, the money-driven fucking people that are just in it to make money. They don't give a fuck about the planet. They got another planet to go to right now. And you know that's what's going on. You know, you know those billion trillion fucking heirs aren't sitting here on this collapsing planet going, oh, what are we going to do? They have a plan. And they're already in action. I believe that firmly, that there is another place to go to when this shit goes down. Because what they're not doing, if you're noticing, is investing in the planet. They're Mm -hmm. investing in getting off of this planet. And anybody who doesn't see that is fucking stupid. You know, it's like they are really not sorry, not stupid, in denial. The trillionaires are investing in getting off of this planet. And that's what's going on. And they're just going to go do what they're doing here over there. So the best thing that we could do is try to create some kind of harmony. Because I do believe, I do believe as cheesy as this is going to sound, I do believe love can conquer all. And coming together and creating energy, hand-locking us together around this world could fix a lot of stuff. 
So that's what I'm going to focus on is trying to help empower more people and getting them more secure. And but it has to start with small. I'm not big. I'm not Leo Leonardo DiCaprio, but I can touch certain people, you know, and help, you know, and I, I mean it that way either. But just meaning we can make an impact in very small places. Your comment about it being cheesy to say that love can conquer all. It's like heart energy, it's proven now that heart energy is way more powerful than brain power. I mean, they've actually done scientific tests to show what you're transmitting when you're you know, meditating and focusing on the heart or being in that state. And it's way more powerful than anything the brain can do. So it's not cheesy at all. It's truth. And we need to catch up to it like so many things. Just to say that you're doing you know, so much across so many spaces of raising awareness. And I think the, the raising awareness thing is such a big part because once someone becomes aware of something, they can't become unaware of it. But to activate that awareness is very difficult. Um, and I just joined you for your Equalizer South by Southwest launch, um, which is really about focusing on the imbalance of female presence in the, in the music industry, which you're very passionate and very vocal about. Yep. <laughs> you don't need to say any more but just that the, there is that there's that whole thing to tackle as well yeah well you know exactly one of the things we even talked about on there that was I mean I didn't even catch on either was the whole other tech side of women the women designers of microphones and keyboards and computers and guitars and you know, programs and all that stuff. It's like, that's a whole other fucking thing. There's none, you know, and it's really interesting. So, you know, I think I can be of service in this area to to empower girls into maybe taking more charge of their careers by learning these things, discovering them. There's different arts. It's not just the, you know, the pop writer or songwriter or the the artist which we've discussed. And you know, and I think what you do is a really, you know, great. There is no one speaking like you're speaking in that field for women and there's no one speaking like I'm speaking in my field. So the idea is to start teaming up with the people that are the aliens in this area and putting them together. And so it forms one unity, one, one team. And then I think we can make a bigger impact, you know, because, you know, the saying of like, if you really want a great successful business, you don't work with someone who's another creative. You have a business person and you have the creator. So that way, that's a successful business. So that's the kind of team, and you are somebody I'm coming after, and I was going to have this conversation with you later in the week, but I'm going to start being a team where, like, I don't need another Linda on our team, but I need a Beatty. But then I don't need another Beatty, but I need another, like, you know, successful manager and then someone who's designing tech and and maybe an A&R or a publisher or something else. Like everybody that has the strength, all our superpowers, and we put it together, you know, like the fucking Avengers and we go out there and we go attack and save the world because it's not just about music. It's like, you know, I'm from an abusive family. 
I've been sexually abused. I've been physically abused. I have an alcoholic father. It's passed away. I'm suicidal. I'm a, a, a woman. I'm gay. I'm also diverse. I'm a Latino gay woman in this field. I, you know what I mean? There's a lot that I'm not even expressing. There's a couple of things I'll talk to you about later that you're going to be surprised about. But there's there's a lot of shit going on here. And you know what I mean? There's a lot we got to do, BD. Mm. There's a lot. But I think with one Avengers team that can share their personal traumas and and turn them into something that is positive and showing these girls because it's beyond just girls in the music business. Yeah. It's about women in this fucking world. Yeah. You know, and how they are treated constantly to this day. And that's the team I'm trying to build. I'm just using music right now to start it. But it's going to launch into this whole other medium that's going to be able to touch base on a lot of things that are problematic in this lifetime, in this in this world regarding women. Mm. Well, a women to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving to the part of the show, which is very sad, very sad. We have to imagine a world without you. Uh, what would the song be that you'd have play at your memorial? You know, fuck you for that question, too, because that <laughs> was super hard. Because, of course, I don't want one song. I At my memorial, I want fucking Coachella. I want, like, fucking a festival happening and a bunch of diverse bands. And, yeah, it would be great to get Blondie and you know, Susie and the Banshees and all my favorite artists, you know, ever. The Pink snake Floyd, from Jungle Book. The snake from Jungle Book <laughs> or someone to cover it. You know, all of it. I would want my friends, you, everybody performing a song, whether they know how to play one or not. That's what I want at my memorial, you know. But with that said, there's been a song that entered into my life recently that has been my calm that has been my my meditation that has been my voice to provoke conversations inner conversations outward conversations while I'm driving in the car being able to confront certain things that I haven't with my mom with myself um, the forgiveness being able to let go of uh, regrets or pain, uh, things that have happened to me, you know, I can sit and listen to the song and I have these open conversations with just myself as if the person is there. I've been able to let go of a lot of pain and a lot of things that I've been holding on to with this weird song that showed up by simply, simply one day I walked into this store called High Art Market in Silver Lake. It's this Japanese store that sells um, very authentic, right from J Japan, clothes or um, homeware or kitchen towels. I mean, I love it. It's my favorite store. And it was playing in there and I was shopping and I instantly just went into this calm, this very therapeutic state of just 
calm. Then I started pulling focus over to the song. And I'm like, what is this song? And she's like, oh, this is, you know, it's called... um, the Dark Woods, and it's by this artist, and she didn't know who the artist was. She's like, Akira something. And so I took a picture of the, the cover, and I started just listening to it over and over. And if I'm driving to work, I put it on. If I'm walking to work, I listen to it. My son goes to sleep by it when I put him to bed. You know, he mm-hmm. says, are you going to play The Dark Woods? I'm like, yes. And it's this instrumental hypnotic it plays the same thing over and over and I had recently had this surgery and I'm afraid of surgeries and anesthesia and I asked them to play it during my surgery so I could be calm and a lot of things in very little time has been brought up so I would love if before Coachella, my festival, that people can be sitting around and they listen to this very beautiful body of music that I don't even know what it is. It's magical to me. And they would find a calm. They would find an inner strength. They would understand how my passing is so powerful, you know, and maybe they would find their own letting go of their own demons or anything that they're sitting there while listening to the song. They don't, you don't need to think about me, but what would be honoring me is by thinking about, you know, healing yourself during this time, whether it's something that happened to you 10 years ago, whether it's a situation you're in now, whether it's a conversation you never had with your family member or friend or lover with yourself. Hey, while you're listening to the song at my memorial, these are the things. Let whatever come to you come. Do not feel guilt or weird that you're not thinking about me because you are thinking about me when you are off on your own discovering and healing yourself through this song. That's why I chose that. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, now we're going to take a listen to In the Dark Woods by Akira Kosimura, and this is the track that Linda would have play at her memorial. And that was In the Dark Woods by Akira Kosimura. And that was the song that Linda Perry would have play at her memorial. And really, the first time I heard it, I only heard it when you sent it over. I'd never heard it before. It is incredibly beautiful. And I sort of stopped in my tracks. There's something incredibly healing and powerful and meditative. And that one really, really touched me. Yeah. And I also think, too, I wouldn't want 
again, at my festival, it's a different story. But during the memorial, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth. I don't want to put any thought. So I definitely would never play anything that is trying to speak for me, you know, by playing a song like Seasons in the Sun, you know, whatever. It's just like I, I would want it to be everybody to find their own words and voice on how to describe the emotion that they're feeling right now. And so, again, that's even why even more so this song would be the one, because it allows you to have your own voice and your own thought. How do you feel about death, Linda? You know, I don't know. Like, you listen, Beatty, I still have, I mean, I'm not going to kill myself, but I do fantasize, you know. But it's like, I don't know. Like, part of me really, like, what I'm afraid of is not is common. It's it's dying before I'm ready. Dying before I'm ready and I've done what I've done. But the thing is is I don't know if I'm ever gonna be ready, you know. So I'm actually looking forward to that feeling of that relief, to be honest. Mm-hmm. When it's time, I'm really hoping I'm aware of it. I'm hoping that I get I get to know. I know that's a lot to ask. But I'm really hoping that I get to know, oh, I'm going soon. You know, you get that feeling, you get that instinct. That would be the best gift in the world because I would be able to just ease out of this fucking battle war I've been in with myself my whole life. I'm tired. I'm tired. I really am. And to know you're getting to that state, you know, whether it's 79, 89, I know the universe is going to be cruel to me and keep me around to like 105. I already know that, you know, it's like, so going to be funny. Um, But I'm looking forward to that vacation, because I know it doesn't stop there. There's too many things that go on with me that that indicate there are other lives. And I do believe that. I do believe it. You know, I do believe my soul, my spirit has been around a long, long time because too many, like, for instance, I'll give you this. I know it's long winded, but I got to tell you this because you'll appreciate it. So I've always wanted to do karate, you know, karate. And and I've never done it. My whole life I've wanted to do it. I've never done it. And I've never joined a class, nothing. And I, I put Rhodes into a class because I wanted him to get that feeling of centering with his core. He's too young for yoga, but I felt like, you know, karate, jujitsu, all that stuff is about centering your core, really fine tuning and really focus, right? So I enrolled him and I was just like watching him and then you can't watch for a while because they don't want the, the the parents to be around. They want the kids to have their own identity with the relationship with the karate. And um, so the other day I went in there and I'm like, fuck it, fuck it. I'm going to make time for this. So I joined a class and I did a private class and I went in yesterday, nice. which I just pat myself on the back for doing, you yeah. know, but then when I was in it, I swear to fucking God, I've never ever have taken it before never done anything remotely close to any of it right i know nothing about it but i kid you not bd 
I swear to fucking God, it was like the Matrix when Keanu, it's like download, you know, karate or jujitsu <laughs> or whatever all of it is called. I'm not fucking kidding you. Even the teacher was like, are you lying to me about karate? You're just naturally, you have the, the posture. I picked up everything so quickly. He's like, in one session... He said, we were already three sessions in. Like, this is where I'm at right now is like where you would be after three or four sessions. Wow. And I just like was like, I've done this before. I've done it fucking before. And he's like, I really believe it. He's like, your energy can feel it. Like, you're focused like you've been doing this before. He's like, that's why I didn't believe you. But now I, I do believe you because I'm seeing it and witnessing your shock. But that... That came from somewhere. That's incredible. I've probably told you this, but um, as a teenager, I had a black belt in ninjutsu. It was literally a group of all men, adults, and then me. And um, yeah, and I've been having this feeling of like, oh, I want to get back into that because I felt so good doing it. And I also had a similar feeling where it was like something very familiar. So that's that's fucking cool. Yeah. So what do you feel this lifetime has been about for you? Um, torture. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. That's going to be several conversations, you know, to get to that. I think that's where I'm at right now. At 56, I'm going to be 57 in April. I'm just asking those questions. I'm just now prepared to accept the answers. You know, I haven't. I've been making up my own version of what I think life is. And truly, to be quite honest, I've been faking it this whole way and just kind of being what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing, but I've been doing it all on instinct. And now I don't want to just live on instinct anymore. I actually want to have a clear focus and purpose, you know? And so these are questions I'm asking myself. I wasn't prepared to ask or prepared to receive. So I feel like I am really prepared to receive the true meaning of life for me right now. What is the album you would pass on to the next generation, but specifically Rhodes, your son, and why? Yeah, that that was a hard one too, because, you know, it would have been easy for me to say Pet Sounds. It would have been easy for me to bring in my memory, but... There's this artist named Ezra Furman that I don't know anything about. I just discovered her. She's transgender, and I love what she's doing. I love her energy. I love her lyrics. I love the healing I'm, I'm reading in her lyrics. And I love that she's been through this and I, she's been through that. I love that she's new and upcoming. And so whether it's that album, what I wanted to leave behind was something that has no memory for me, mm. that has no attachment, because the new generation should have their own understanding. But I do know that this artist is going to be prominent, but it's not going to, you know, it's going to be good for Rhodes. It's going to be good for the new generation 
So it would have been obvious to leave Harvest Moon. I don't want to do that. I want to leave something I don't know. And so this artist, I don't know anything about. And so I'm going to discover it as well as my son is going to discover now. You know, that was the whole equalizer thing, why it's a baby. It's because grab your daughter when she's right out. Equalize her the day she is born. We are all equal when we are born. But then it's parents and society that turns these girls into what the stereotype girl is. You got to go to Girl Scouts. You got to wear dresses. You got to do this. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. Equalize her now. The day she shows up, let her know she is equal to all men. How do you feel about your legacy? What is my legacy? <laughs> your legacy I ha- is... I don't have it yet. That, let's talk... <laughs> That's a, give okay. me give me 10 15 more years maybe 20 years and then we'll talk ask me that part 2 Perfect. Just a few moments. We're going to end with Point Me to the Real, um, which is sort of interesting because you said fairly recently in this conversation that you felt like you've been faking it on some level. But then you're also the most fierce person, I'd say, when it comes to things being real, you know, and authentic and keeping those imperfections and not ironing everything out. So it's funny, Linda, because, you know, you said you've been faking it, but you've also managed to be incredibly real. Yeah, well, I am real. I get I know that I'm raw. I mean, I'm sandpaper. I am so raw (laughs) when it comes to that kind of stuff, because I think that's what keeps me in the now. It's like I have to have that honesty. I have to because I've been lied to, Beatty, my whole fucking life. My parents were so... Oh, my God. I still get lied to. And I love my mom. Bless her. But it's like... I would not wish that on anybody. So I go out of my way, even if I know it's going to be hurtful, to be honest. And I'm willing to take the fucking punches for it, you know? When I mean faking it, it's like the honesty is not a part of surviving life or how I'm navigating. It's just who I am. It's a part of it. Again, it's like hair on my head. What I'm faking is... Like sometimes I just don't know what I'm fucking doing. I'm just bound to this instinct to hopefully this will sum it up really easy. Like one day I was with a friend. I think we were in Nashville or somewhere. Austin. We were in Austin. And not not this time. It was like one of the first times I ever went to Austin. And I don't know Austin. I don't know anything about how to get from there to there in Austin. I don't know the directions. I don't know where anything is. And so one day I was like, let's go on a walk. And we just started walking, walking, no idea where we are, just walking. And I love going on walks, but I was able to navigate a four mile walk and navigate it to a point where we ended up right back to the hotel. And my friend the whole time kept on asking, do you know where you're going? I'm like, yeah. And I was lying. I had no idea. I was just going on pure instinct, randomly walking, randomly turning. But I just turned on instinct. 
and got us right back to the hotel. And I started laughing, and they were like, God, have you been here before? And how did you do that? We can no navigation on the phone. And I just started laughing. I go, I had no fucking idea how we got here. <laughs> None. No idea whatsoever. I fucking faked that all the way through. And that's what I mean about faking. I'll act like I know what I'm doing. And I fake it, but I always make it. It's like I am faking it and I'm making it, you know. So it's like there's no fake it till you make it. I'm actually making it with it. That, that sums it up. That's how I live life. I'm just walking with no navigation, none at all, no idea where I'm going, but I'm allowing, I'm trusting the instincts that live, that pulse inside me to help me through. Well, I'd also say that life exists often in the paradoxes or truth exists in the paradoxes. So one can be two things simultaneously. And that's often actually where the magic is. If you're just one thing, you know, you can get kind of stuck in that yeah. and you miss the space between. So last couple of questions, Linda, what do you treasure most about life on this planet? I love people. I love people. I love them. I love that I can hate them. I love that I can love them. I love that they make me laugh. I love that I can be, you know, suspicious. I love strangers. You know, I love smiling at somebody when I'm walking by them and how they smile back. I love how people just come into your life for random reasons. I just think it's fascinating how connected we are when you've never met someone before, but you feel so connected to them. I enjoy that mystery. Like, what is that? And that's why I believe in the energy of the world. You know, like something draws us to certain people. I'll go up to strangers and say the craziest things because something tells me to say it to them. You don't know this side about me, but like, I love walking. And I do a lot of long, crazy walks. You know, I just get lost in walks. And I, something will tell me to give that person that's sitting at the bus a hundred bucks. Or something will tell me to tell this guy that, you know, I saw playing piano at the keyboard shop to go up to him and say, you know what, it's okay. Everything's going to be okay. And I have a connection. We all have a connection. And I love discovering and being vulnerable. That's why I can write with people in the craziest random ways is because I'm open to the connection, you know, and you've experienced that. That's what I believe in. And that's what I love most about this world, you know, is the people, whether I like them or not, is not important. It's the connection that you can have to someone who pushes your buttons why did that person just show up out of nowhere? And I feel jealousy. I feel like my buttons was pushed. You know what it makes me do? It, it forces me to look in and find out why. What do they have that I want? Because that's what it comes down to is when someone pushes your buttons and you're angry and you don't like them, they have something that you want. So I look into that and I'm like, oh, they worked with, you know, so-and-so or they seem like, you know, they come from such a different family, blah, or whatever. I don't know. I have to discover myself through it. So people 
help us heal、mm. all the time, whether they're good or bad. When actually, I see it as not necessarily showing you what you want, as in someone comes to act as a mirror. For something, maybe you need to look at in yourself,、mm. and it's often a projection, and it's often an illusion of what you think they have or what you think it's about, and and often it just comes back to those core wounds, you know, and、yeah. and the childhood. <laughs> so yeah, and then that's where the healing occurs. So, what is the thread, Linda, that connects all your orange juice for the year choices? I guess it is light and dark. I don't know how to put it into words because you know it's all about survival for me. It's all about the drawn out melodramatics of music, the rawness, the the healing of it. I don't know how to put it into to one. It's just everything about music, everything about sound is orange juice to my ears, whether I like it or not. And thinking about music today, what do you think we've gained, and what do you think we've lost? I can definitely point out what we have lost. What we have lost is, I think people don't write for themselves. They're not making records for themselves. They're making records for all these other reasons: for brands to be relevant, influence, money, followers. I don't even know what people are making records for. You know, if if not for themselves. So that I feel is a big loss in the art of songwriting. People really from scratch and coming up with music. That's just I'm not trying to think of anybody. I'm just writing a song for myself, and and I wanted to have a an emotional impact because it's healing me, or it's bringing out something in myself, or what the fuck. This is just what's in me right now to write, and I'll I'll get what it's about later. But I guess I just feel like people don't believe in themselves enough to just sit down and write a song that has real meaning. They're always overthinking the process. So I guess I feel like we lost those Janis Joplin's, we lost our Patti Smith, we lost our Zeppelin. I don't hear those type of artists, and I'm not talking about the music. I'm just talking about. Where it came from,、mm. Patti Smith got up on stage and was speaking poetry, and she turned it into some fucking badass fucking rock and roll. Where is that? That raw energy. So I feel we lost the real, and what we have gained is a lot of greed. We gained a lot of egos. You know, really over the top. What are going to be our, you know, songwriter Hall of Famers and Hall of Fame rock stars or whatever? I'm curious about that in this generation, starting in 2000. I'm really curious about it. But what we've gained is a lot of experimental music. There are a lot of artists that are joining in that are taking a lot of risk. Music is able to get out over across the world. You know that's a good thing and a bad thing.、Um, we lost the fundamentals of what should be appreciated and respected as songwriters. They're undervalued, underappreciated. 
You're not getting paid for your worth anymore because the greed stepped in and is taking that away from everybody. So the people who are actually creating the art are the most lowest paid people. But we are constantly gaining new, fresh perspective on life and art. And very last question, what is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you're doing and that you've done in the past? I don't know. Maybe look at that chick. She actually did some really cool shit, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? That's really it. I mean, I'm not trying to change the world, BD. I'm just honestly trying to... I just want to do some cool shit, and and I'm hoping people see it and it can influence. And I'm hoping to leave a beautiful catalog of music behind for my son to just appreciate and be proud and a generation of kids and people to look back on and maybe study and go, how did she do this? And through these, you know, archaic, you know, documents on uh, the computer called reviews or interviews, they'll discover that I had no idea what I was doing. I was just feeling, you know, so if somebody hears what's up, you know, when I'm dead and they want to know how that song was written and they discover that I have no idea that I just was writing it from my heart, maybe that will influence them to approach music that way. And then I've done something. Perfect. Well, Linda, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to close now on Point Me to the Real by Ezra Furman and Linda, thank you once again. Absolutely. Thanks, Beatty. I'll see you soon. Point me toward-